please turn with me in your Bibles again to 2 Corinthians. Today we'll be in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. As we've already seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and then in the first four verses of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul's defense of his ministry to the Corinthians has involved a lot of revealing discussion about affliction and suffering and pain. For the Corinthians, much of their pain early on had been their own fault. But for Paul, much of his pain came from his deep concern, care, and love for this particular congregation. He opens his heart to them in this letter in ways that communicate this over and over and over again. And today, in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, we get to see something very special. We get to see the results of the discipline that Paul had initiated with them. The discipline that had caused him so much agony and pain as he both carried out his previous short but painful visit to them and then wrote what he called his painful follow-up letter to them, which we don't have. And now in our verses, verses 5 through 11, Paul sneakily but still forthrightly uses himself as an example for how to carry out genuine forgiveness. We find out that the Corinthians had followed through and disciplined the guilty party, which evidently had resulted in him genuinely repenting. And now they must forgive and restore this person, which is no easy task after all the turmoil and pain already. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Interesting paragraph, is it not? So in verse 5, we see who caused the pain and 
Who do they cause the pain for or to? When we read, now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Even though there is some question about who this is referring to, we have a good idea. Paul is being careful not to specifically identify the person, even though the initial recipients of this letter in Corinth would immediately know who that would be. And remember, this letter would soon be passed around to other New Testament churches. By switching from the word anyone here to such a one in verse 6, and then him in verses 7 and 8, it seems that Paul is thinking of one particular person. It could either be the incestuous man in 1 Corinthians, or it could be referring to what we could call the main instigator or of a group of people who had been vigorously working against Paul, undermining his ministry. We could call this the opposition leader, who was a very strong critic of Paul. I lean toward this second option for reasons that we won't get into minutely today. Notice that even though dealing with this issue was very hard and agonizing for Paul, he writes that this person caused great pain for all the Corinthians. Now, if anyone had caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. Paul is saying that he is not the only one who has been grieved by this man, but that the whole church has suffered because of him. Isn't that exactly what sin does? And many of us have experienced something similar, and it's amazing what the sin and digging in in sin will do to a church by one person who is bent on causing his as much trouble as possible by demanding his own way. It's ugly. How does the whole church suffer great pain when someone is undermining the truth? Well, there's lots of ways. And here's just a few. There's growing doubt for some as their assurance and confidence in the Lord wanes. There's more division as lack of trust grows behind the scenes. There may be less interest in sharing the gospel because their own church is such a mess. There may be growing anger as more and more people wonder who can they trust. And there may be a growing and weighty grief as people are genuinely burdened by this member's unrepentant sin. Now, this may sound strange at first and counterintuitive, but it is good that they felt grief over sin. As hard as that is, we need to realize this is really true. If you didn't feel grief when there was sin in your midst, then you'd have even a bigger problem. When there has been evident sin in a member of a church, 
It's the depth of grief felt by the members that will show the spiritual quality of that fellowship. Let that sink in. It's the pride of a holier-than-thou kind of attitude in a church that proves that what's going on there is anything but a deep work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is grieved by sin. His presence in a church will make it a deeply loving fellowship, and this will be expressed in grief among its members if such a serious situation should arise. And we cannot be afraid of that. We need to embrace it as much as possible and realize that we're getting a little taste of what our Savior actually felt. In verse 6, the Corinthian church majority had followed through with church discipline. Now let's think about this for a second. At first we really excited by this. We'll end up excited by this. But there's also some other points. We read, For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. Well, the majority of the church did act in carrying through with church discipline. Because we find out that they're encouraged and instructed by Paul to then forgive and restore this man. And this must point to his removal from the church, his excommunication. But notice that the word majority is used here, which means there were still some in the body who were sympathetic to his cause and so defended him and objected to his removal. In other words, there were still some disagreements and some of their divisions were still showing up If a majority of this church was following through with the terms of removing this man from fellowship, then only a majority were not fellowshipping with him, as church discipline dictates when it goes that far. One of the biggest reasons for excommunication is for a church as a whole to act as a unified body that communicates the same message to the person being disciplined and doing so with sad and humble hearts. The message being, we cannot fellowship with you because of your continued refusal to repent of your divisive behavior, which is an offense to the Lord and a serious danger to his church and its calling. One part of the church's hope is that if the person is truly a believer, that person would miss the fellowship of believers so much that they would come to see the seriousness of their sin and repent. So there probably still were some who were not yet grasping how important it was for the church to maintain high standards of conduct, or they were having great difficulty figuring out how to live in such an immoral and godless society, and this was just too much to handle, and they 
just wanted to do what they wanted to do, which wasn't what the, the, the decision of the church had been. Yet, enough people did fulfill their God-given roles in this discipline process that Paul obviously feels God's purpose in the act of discipline was now fulfilled. In fact, God worked so much through it that he says it's enough. This man is genuinely repentant, genuinely godly, sorrowful, and it's going to be dangerous for him to keep going that direction now that he has. So the call is for the church to then shift gears. That man, obviously, must have shown the signs or qualities of genuine repentance, which, by the way, Paul deals with in detail in chapter 7. And when we get there, it's one of the best descriptions of what true, genuine repentance is. So I'm going to sum it up really quick by using a seven-page handout that we found by a guy named Matt Black at Living Hope Bible Church. I have this uh, on a digital form, the whole thing. We have used it several times, many times. We've encouraged other people to use it because it is so clear and so easy to read, and it's even got a few cool graphics that help us get our heads around it. And I can email that to you if you let Marty or I know. So what are the signs and qualities of genuine repentance? Because this is what really bogs us down when we realize and see sin amongst us. And we want to know, okay, what's it going to look like when, when he does see his sin and actually fall down before God and run to the cross? Well, first... As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, forsaking sin completely is one of the signs. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's, it's a desire to forsake completely. It's repentance without regret. And secondly, it's forsaking sin immediately with earnestness. There's no playing around and making a model and giving yourself three more weeks or a month you know, to try to deal with something. You... Forsake it immediately because you recognize the offense towards God. It's confessing of sin and coming clean, which Paul says, with what eagerness to clear yourselves. And fourth, it's hatred for sin because it violates God's glory. What indignation is the way he puts it later in chapter 7. And it's the fear of God and his holiness. What fear is the next phrase in those verses. And then it's the vehement or fervid desire to get right with God and others. You notice both are included. And Paul puts that, he says, what longing in chapter 7 you have to do this. And it's seventh, the enthusiastic desire then to please God. And Paul says, what zeal? And then eighth, it's the realization that God's grace is costly. And he says, what punishment? So 
forsaking sin completely, forsaking sin immediately, confessing sin, coming clean, hatred for sin because it violates God's glory, the fear of God and His holiness, the fervid desire to get right with God and the others who have been sinned against, the enthusiastic desire to please God, and the realization that God's grace is costly. This gives us a great picture, not just for somebody else. Did you notice that when you go through that list? Immediately you start thinking, oh, I really maybe didn't take this seriously enough in my own sin. So this is a great list to have, but it's right there in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 11. So what a turnaround. What a turnaround for this man. And in verse 7 and 8, he's repented, so now the members must forgive and restore. So my question always is, and it's not really a question that deserves much of anything, but it kind of comes to us. It's like, well, which is harder? The discipline process itself or then having to forgive and restore the person? knowing all the damage that has been done. Both are hard, and they cost us something. So Paul writes here, so you should rather, you notice this, turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And he says in verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul's heart is on display here. A local church should, of course, pray for such repentance. But it also has to be willing to recognize the signs of it so they can get on with the task of restoring the person to the fellowship. Why? Because this whole process is not vindictive. which is the direction so many of us are tempted to go if you've been hurt as a part of it. How is the church supposed to do this? You know what? It's so simple, we don't want to look at it because it's so hard to do. The church must truly forgive the man. There is no other way. In the first five verses of this chapter, we saw the word pain or painful used six times. So it's obvious what that paragraph was about. This paragraph in verses 6 through 11, the second verse of this paragraph starts, verse 5, it kind of transitions over to this gear. We see another word that's used or emphasized about five times. And what is that word? It's forgive. The references to comforting him and reaffirming their love for him tell us how important it is that their forgiveness cannot be half-hearted. It has to be full and final. A true love to him from this church body is the only way that he will receive a complete restoration of fellowship. Now, let's be honest. 
we all know that our hearts may be very resistant to such a task, don't we? That's why Paul uses the phrase, reaffirm your love for him. This word here, reaffirm, is incredibly important. This is a legal word, and it literally means to decide in favor of. Paul is saying that this legal decision should be to love the person concerned. In other words, this does not mean that you're trying to or you're supposed to rev up your feelings for him so that you can try to be nice to him if you see him. But you're still going to sit on the other side of the church and try to get out as fast as you can or hope that he does. This is a decision that you make. And instead of the feelings that you may try to depend on, it has nothing to do with your feelings. Did you notice that? This is a decision you have to make first because God knows our feelings may take a while to come around. Instead, you deliberately make a decision to pray for and work for the good of this person. This is where the gospel that saved us saves us again in this situation. Was there any reason at all for God to love me or you? No, there wasn't. The love we're asked to give to a person removed from the fellowship of the church who then sees and repents genuinely of his sin is the same kind of love given to all of us from Christ Jesus when he chose to die for his people whose hearts had rejected him. We live in a world right now that has no idea what love is. We've talked about this in previous weeks. Genuine love is first and foremost a decision to love somebody. It's the love of Christ in us that we can give to another one of his own by grace through faith in his work. Who am I to deny anyone who is also a part of Christ's body? That's really the question. He has united us to himself, and his Holy Spirit dwells in each one of us that he has purchased with his blood, so we really are a part of one another. In Christ Jesus. Now, had Paul forgiven this man, who probably was the main opponent of Paul and his ministry in the church, and had said all sorts of things that were negative about him and what he was doing, and therefore had caused Paul so much anguish? Yes, Paul forgave this man as he explains this in the rest of the verses today. Now, sidebar, how important is forgiveness to our Lord? Something I became aware of this week by someone much more observant than me. 
we see the vital importance of forgiveness explained by Christ when he taught his disciples how to pray. There are seven basic parts or elements of the Lord's Prayer. So I'll just follow along here. First, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Second, your kingdom come. Third, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Fourth, give us this day our daily bread. Fifth, and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Sixth, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And seventh, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, which one of these parts or elements is the only one that Jesus made reference to immediately after this prayer was given to them? Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Immediately after this prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow. Jesus is saying that forgiveness is a vital part of belonging to him and that a failure to forgive others indicates that you also need the restoration of your own personal relationship with God. This is not referring to the justification you received in salvation itself by the blood of Jesus. These two verses. This is the day-to-day cleansing necessary Because we still sin often, even though we're justified once for all. There is nothing nothing about this passage that is not humbling. So Paul is keenly aware what must be overcome when restoring someone to the fellowship who has injured so many other people. And uneasiness often prevents many people from treating the offender as if that person is completely restored. This is nothing new. We see John Calvin's pastoral heart here. He says something very, actually, short. He offered this counsel to the church. Whenever we fail to comfort those that are moved to a sincere confession of their sin. We play into Satan's hands, which is exactly how Paul ends this section. Probably where Calvin got that teaching from. In verse 9, Paul begins with, for this is why I wrote, which is referring to that earlier painful letter in which he had expressed his desire, obviously, or implied pretty clearly, that they apply church discipline to this divisive opponent. He tells them why he wrote, that I might test you 
and know whether you are obedient in everything. In other words, Paul wanted to know if they would comply and follow through. His wording here also expresses his apostolic authority. And he expects them to follow through with forgiving and restoring this man now that they've also disciplined him. The result being his genuine repentance. In other words, since you did obey in the discipline part, I believe you'll also follow through in any other very difficult part, which is the forgiving and the restoring part. So, after all the counsel to them and the multiple letters and instructions, Paul now acknowledges their spiritual progress. Here in verse 10, how? Well, notice that he is now speaking like a father to his spiritual children in the same family. When the children are ready to forgive the repentant man, he also forgives. Now, we know that he had already forgiven him. He says that. But he's still doing it this way, communicating to these people. He wants to really um, emphasize this. In other words, Paul wants to see the Corinthians take the lead in forgiving this man. So they can own it. And so they can know that they did what God wanted them to do, again, as hard as it is. And what's also so special is that the forgiveness he's speaking of comes from their hearts, as his does also. What does he mean by, if I have forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ? Do you see his love and his heart coming out there? Paul is affirming that his forgiveness of this man has been from his heart. He holds no grudges against his previous opponent. And folks, remember, once again, you cannot do that unless you realize that Christ has completely paid for all of your sin himself. So it has to come from him. And the tense of the verb that Paul indicates here indicates that Paul had already dealt with this matter before his writing of this letter. His forgiveness of his previous opponent has been for their sake in the presence of Christ. means that he had to personally forgive the man not only for his own sake, but also so that he wouldn't be in the way of the Corinthians experiencing the grace and blessing of seeing one of their own come back in humility to the Lord and to them. That is a spiritual leader. He doesn't want to get in the way of them experience grace in doing it. Do you see the difference? There's not a press conference and he's going, yeah, 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 my people are great. I've been teaching them for how many years and they're, 
they follow my lead really well. None of that. He's doing this so that the people themselves know that they are obeying Christ as a church. In verse 11, Paul reminds his readers of the behind-the-scenes spiritual battle going on. And this, if you're not ready for it, it almost comes as a punch, although we should recognize this from the very beginning, should we not? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now that's saying a lot. Remember, this is the Corinthian church. And they had been awfully gullible about a whole lot of stuff. Especially in the culture that they lived in. This is, there's hardly anything comparable to the insidious danger of not being willing to forgive others in a local body of Christ. And we have to be aware of that all the time, knowing that we ourselves so often play with sin, put up with it, takes us forever to get around to dealing with it. Nothing can hogtie a congregation and hinder the cause of Christ faster than an unforgiving congregation. When grudges run rampant and divisions become the norm and that's what your church is known for, heaven forbid. A festering spirit of animosity doesn't just keep the church in neutral, which means what? That our work of proclaiming the gospel kind of quits and goes down the drain because everybody's too busy fighting each other inside. It launches every other sort of evil that's imaginable. Scattering God's people with hearts turned to stone is one of Satan's main tactics to bury the gospel. Now, just a real short, maybe hopefully an encouragement about the day in which we live. We are in desperate need of God-given wisdom if we are to see and understand Satan's design, are we not? And right now, in our society, there is more vitriol boiling over than I've ever seen in all my 68, almost 69 years. Now, I realize that in history... Someone much older than me, my parents' generation, almost went through two world wars. And this doesn't really compare to anything like that. But yet it does, doesn't it? Because we're going through it now. And it makes me absolutely sick. The saddest part of everything going on right now is the hatred and the juxtaposition, even between those who claim the name of Christ. And it's going to get worse. The saddest part of everything going on is just that to me. And we need to be really, really careful about dividing over issues that the Bible tells us, hey, that's not in this category, folks. So be careful 
no matter which theory you're holding to, no matter whether you are suffocating right now behind that thing on your face, no matter whether you do think you have special information about this conspiracy theory and that one and that one and that one, be careful. We have to give our brothers and sisters in Christ some leeway here. We are living in a perfect storm of controversy. And if you quit being mad long enough to sit back and look at it, that's exactly the way to describe it. It is a perfect storm of controversy. A combination of political, social, economic, racial, cultural, spiritual division. All together. And literally everyone seems to be screaming at everyone else, not caring one iota about anybody else or their opinions. Everybody's dug in, or it seems like it. The lines are being drawn about more issues than we can even keep count of. So yes, it's super confusing. And our first priority as people belonging to the Lord God Almighty is to humbly be absolutely committed to worshiping and serving him every day of our lives. That's got to be number one, and it's got to stay there. And like Seth expressed, and like we sang earlier, we need to be grateful we can even be here. Yeah, we can work to see the issues beyond that. But this is only half the church. And when we look at it, you know, the vast majority of the people, almost everybody who can come is attending at one service or the other. Do you realize how wonderful that is? We need to be glad about that. Thank God for that. Keep praying for that. And as we have to make more and more decisions and distinctions, about what all we are seeing and hearing and experiencing, we must realize how very much we need each other as brothers and sisters in Christ to bounce this stuff off of each other through the Word of God with the Holy Spirit's leading so we can know better how to live each and every day. We respond to these things differently. And we need to be aware of that so that we can help each other as how we respond to our Lord. We have, to got, we have got to live humbly each day before our God in order to know where and how he wants us to walk and serve and stand. How about you, but the prayers seem to be pretty forthright now. We've got to pray for mercy always, and wisdom, and strength, and how about spiritual renewal in Christ? For here, our land, and the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you again for your word for being able to see Paul's heart in this letter toward this group of Christians that you bought with the blood of your son and the struggles they were going through that we can identify so much with in so many ways. 
we thank you for reminding us that when rebellious, sinning Christians do hold on to their rebellion, that your discipline process can and does often work in their hearts as your spirit brings them back to yourself, convicts them of their sin, and we get to see genuine confession and repentance. Oh Lord, we pray that, that we all would be ready to be used by you to be part of your people that are not naive about what sin is and the, necess- and the necessity to discipline, but know when and how, and to trust you through the whole process humbly, because we know that we never have the full picture. But Lord, we trust you in those things. And in this day and time, it's probably even harder. So we pray for your mercy to us. And we pray for mercy for those who are acting in shameful ways. And their hearts are filled with hatred and they do not have peace with you because they don't know the Savior. And we pray that you would use us in these situations to be able to proclaim the gospel and relate in ways that point to your grace, your truth, and that you you are Almighty God. Lord, we pray for your wisdom. We need it desperately, and we pray that you would make us hungrier and hungrier for your word where we know and learn more about you and how you've revealed yourself to us, which then gives us instructions for our attitudes and our trust and where it needs to be placed, where our hopes are, where our dreams are, where our day-to-day thinking should be. And we thank you that you are committed to this process of making us more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, work in our hearts so that we agree with that, that we're not just Christians that want the last thing, but we don't want to live that way now. We are recognizing more and more how important it is to point every part of our lives to you for your glory and honor. And Lord, we pray for strength. We know that Paul says when he's weak, he's strong. That when he's not depending in his efforts completely, he gives them to you that your spirit strengthens us to be able to stand where we need to stand, to be able to kneel where we need to kneel, to be able to move forward when you want us to move forward, to be able to stand aside when there needs to be comfort and that you'd give us the wisdom to know how to do each one. Lord, thank you that Christ came for us and that our hope is sure and that we can can live today in honor and glory for you and that you have given us peace deep down in our hearts to know that we have a right relationship with you through Christ our sons and that your son and that makes us even more grateful help us preach that gospel to ourselves so that we can live in light of your truth 
We ask that in the precious name of your Savior. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Feel free to say this with me through those things on your face. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.